So Matthew 13, feel free to pull it up on your phone or in your Bible, verses 31 to 33. As I was preparing um, to preach on this passage, I, I found it particularly encouraging as I was studying it. I guess it's because I've been a bit overwhelmed lately with all that's wrong in the world. All the hating, the sniping, the bickering that goes on in the news between the left and the right. Uh, instead of people getting together and finding common sense solutions to our nation's problems and our world's problems, of which there are plenty. And it's disheartening to see the way so many Christians and so many prominent Christian leaders have gotten sucked into it. And the result is that Christianity, I think, is getting an even worse name. And a good bit of that, too much of it, has been deserved. And so I fear that today the average American has no idea what Jesus is really like or how awesome Jesus really is. And instead, they have a badly distorted view of what it is that Jesus stands for. And for weeks, I've been wrestling with this. I've been praying about what I can do about it. I don't have a Twitter account with a million followers. Nobody is going to invite me on to their nightly news program to ask what I think. Popular influential Christian leaders aren't asking me for my input before they tweet or say things in public. And so what can I do? And what can you do? Well, again, in reflecting on these two little short parables we're looking at today, I have found great encouragement. The first thing I realized reflecting on these parables is that what worries me today and grieves me today is not a new problem. Even Jesus faced a world and faced a religious scene where his voice was not only not heard, but was downright criticized and rejected. We're going through this series right now on Matthew 13, which is a collection of Jesus's parables. And if you stand back from it and you look at the way the whole gospel of Matthew is structured, you realize that these parables, seven of them in chapter 13, are actually given in response to the rising opposition Jesus was facing in chapters 11 and 12. In fact, if you have your Bible, just flip back two chapters to chapter 11. It starts there with John the Baptist. Even John, the great prophet, that great voice crying in the wilderness to prepare the way for the Lord, even he starts to doubt whether Jesus is the one God sent. Then, next in chapter 11, Jesus starts reflecting on the fact that lots of other people have been rejecting him. He particularly calls out the towns of Chorazin and Bethsaida, where he had done lots of his miracles, but yet in the end, they had rejected him. Then it's the Pharisees as we move on to chapter 12. The Pharisees were sort of a religious party, a grassroots association of rabbis and lay leaders who didn't necessarily have a lot of uh, power in halls of power, but they had a lot of influence on the street level among the common people. They were power, popular, they were very influential. And they started criticizing Jesus. And in fact, they get so opposed to Jesus that they even go out and start plotting to kill him. And so Jesus has to break off his ministry in that area and get out of Dodge, as they say. 
Then a little later, the Pharisees catch up with Jesus again, still in chapter 12, and they criticize Jesus. They badmouth him, saying that he's possessed by a demon. They're trying to discredit him, to dishonor him, to bring shame on him publicly, and to undercut what he's doing. Then next, the teachers of the law join the Pharisees. These are the intellectuals. They're the the elites, the experts. And they come to Jesus and they test him. They say, show us a sign. Give us some proof that you're legit. And, And the reason they're asking is because they don't believe he's legit. And they're trying to call him out. And so if we step back from all of this, there's a pattern here. A pattern of all sorts of people who could be getting on board with Jesus's vision, with the movement that Jesus has started, who are not getting on board. In fact, they're opposed to and they're working against what Jesus is trying to do. Now, if you were Jesus's agent or his community organizer or his campaign manager, you would be really discouraged by now. Because if you want to succeed in bringing change to the world, you have to build coalitions. You have to find allies. You have to develop a groundswell of support and energy for your vision. But instead, for Jesus, it's going in exactly the opposite direction. I mean, sure, Jesus was great at drawing a crowd. People flocked to him to see the miracles that he could do, to to ask him for healing or to hear his teaching. But from a human perspective, Jesus wasn't very good at keeping people or, or channeling their enthusiasm or organizing them into a growing movement. And that reality, the reality of his seeming failure to grow energy and momentum, instead there's growing opposition against him, That's the context into which Jesus gives the parables in Matthew 13. And so the parables are like a response. They're like an explainer to the fact that Jesus's movement, which he calls the kingdom of God, is gaining opposition more than it's gaining momentum. So what the parables are about is how the kingdom of God comes how the revolution, the movement that Jesus is claiming to bring actually comes. And as I said, reading the parables these last uh, couple weeks, especially these two little parables we're looking at today has been a big encouragement to me. The first parable is about a mustard seed. A mustard seed is a tiny little seed, which was proverbial in Jesus's day on account of the incredible contrast it represented between how small the seed is and how big the bush grows that comes from the seed. From this little tiny grain of a seed planted in spring grew a bush that by fall could be four, six, or even 10 to 15 feet tall. That's how the kingdom of God is. Jesus says, it can have very small beginnings, but it can grow to be so large that even the birds can find refuge in its branches. And this image of the birds, by the way, is from Daniel chapter four. It's from a dream that Nebuchadnezzar, the great Babylonian empire from long before had had 
of, of his kingdom, the Babylonian kingdom, being like a huge tree, and even the birds representing the other nations were finding shelter in its branches. That's how big my kingdom will grow, Jesus is saying, and it will be a source of protection and shelter for people of many nations. Then Jesus tells a second short parable. The parable I, I'm going to call the parable of the sourdough bread, because um, I learned in studying this parable that the word for leaven or yeast used in this passage is sourdough starter. That's what they had back then. They didn't have little packets of yeast. They didn't have grocery stores. They kept a little bit of the last baking of bread, a little bit of the dough over and a little warm water and had it ready to start their next loaf. So um, in this parable, the woman takes this little bowl of sourdough starter and she kneads it into, get this, 60 pounds of flour. She is making a lot of bread. Interpreters estimate that this is enough bread probably to feed 100 people. A huge meal, all from this little bowl of starter, of leaven. The leaven seems very small, but when it's worked through a large amount of dough, it has the power to leaven and influence the whole thing. Interestingly, in verse 33, the word Jesus uses for what the woman does with the leaven, it's translated differently in different English translations, but literally it's the word hid. The woman hid the sourdough starter in all that flour, in all that dough. Jesus is, is pointing out, excuse me, not only the smallness of the leaven, but its hiddenness. You can't see that it's in there once you've kneaded it into the dough. But yet it works, right? If you've ever made bread, it's almost like magic. Once you've got your dough ready to rise, you leave it alone, you cover it, you put it somewhere warm. And amazingly, within less than an hour, it starts rising up. It starts growing. And it gets a lot bigger than how it started. It's very cool. And that's the power of a little leaven. Don't be discouraged, Jesus is saying. That's what my kingdom comes like. It may start like a tiny little seed. It may be like a little leaven, hidden, undetectable. But guess what? Give it time. Give it time. It will grow. It will permeate and transform until it has a huge effect in the end. So let's let these two little parables encourage us, even when we feel like we're not having much of an impact. And to do this, as we continue looking at these parables, let's reflect a little more deeply on the three main points of this pair of short parables. First is the smallness and the hiddenness of the kingdom's beginnings. Second is the hugeness, the bigness of its eventual impact. And then third is the fact that both the seed and the starter get used up in the process. So first is the tiny little seed, the small amount of leaven hidden in all through the dough. 
That's how it feels, doesn't it? That's how it felt for Jesus and his followers. There were just a few of them who stuck with it. When Jesus died after three years of, of talking about this great kingdom he was going to bring, Jesus had maybe at most 120 followers if we're generous and we count all of the men and women in the upper room in the city of Jerusalem at Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus' death. That's about the size of CBC, isn't it? How can such a small group of people change the world? Nobody notices us. We don't have a national TV show. We have no social media platform that attracts more than a few dozen followers. We're, we're small. We're, we're hidden. We have no inside channels to politicians in Washington. Each day, um, maybe your life feels small and hidden. You, you just get up, you go to work, you go to school. Maybe you don't even leave the house. But, but the encouraging thing is that Jesus says that that's exactly the sort of small beginnings that a great movement, a great influential transformative revolution can come from. It can come from something as small as a mustard seed, as hidden as a little leaven in a huge quantity of bread dough. And so second, Jesus reminds us of the bigness of what he comes to bring, the bigness of his kingdom. Like a bush, a tree that is, that is bigger than all the other garden plants. I mean, do you have anything else in your garden that can grow to be 10 feet tall that the birds plant, plant, uh, nest in its branches? And remember, that represents the, the nations finding shade and shelter in his kingdom. Or like a little woman baking enough bread to feed her whole village, a huge amount of nourishment and sustenance for the hungry. Jesus assures his followers that in the end, his kingdom will have a huge effect on the world. And if you stop and think about it 2,000 years later, the impact Jesus has had on the world is incredible. And the news doesn't often talk about it. The history books don't talk about it in schools these days. But if you stop and think about it and you dig into the history of the last couple thousand years, Jesus never traveled much further than 100 miles from where he grew up. He never wrote a book. The only audience he ever had with anyone important was his trial with, with some religious leaders and then the Roman governor when they condemned him to death. And yet somehow... Since then, Jesus has made more difference in the world than perhaps anyone else. Just stop and think about all the ways the world is different today compared to how it would have been if Jesus had never come. First, slavery has largely been abolished in the world. And that was in significant part the result of followers of Jesus. For most of history, slavery was accepted and considered normal. Many world religions didn't question it or even condoned it. And of course, many Christians condoned it as well. But ultimately, it was the teachings of Jesus and people's commitment to Jesus that played a large role in slavery being abolished. 
I realized for this and other things, it wasn't Jesus alone. It may have been the influence to some extent of the Enlightenment or classical ideals like democracy, etc. It's often hard for historians to tease out exactly what the impact of each of these factors would be if it wasn't for the other ones too. But Jesus certainly had a very big role. Also, infanticide was ended. The early followers of Jesus were the ones who ended the Roman practice that if you didn't want your baby, you threw it out in the street. Related to this, there's the idea that human life is precious, that humans have dignity because we're made in God's image. And so we should have basic human rights. We, um, we should work for human rights. We should work for justice, for the rights of workers, for the rights of children, for women, for minorities. Again, Jesus had a lot to do with this, along with the Hebrew scriptures, which followers of Jesus did a lot to make popular to the world beyond Judaism. Also medical care, access to education for children. All of these were significantly motivated by the teachings of Jesus, by people who had faith in Jesus, particularly as the revivals in the 17 and 1800s motivated Christians to build schools, to build hospitals. I mean, I could go on, scientific progress, child labor laws, the humane treatment of animals and laws to that effect, the end of widow burning in India, the hopeful belief that the future could actually be better than the past. When you step back and you look at the world today and how different it is compared to how it might have been without Jesus, it's mind-boggling. So much growth, so much impact bubbling up, permeating the world from such a small start and such a hidden beginning. Well, that leads us to the third point of these parables. And this is where the catch is. Because guess what? The seed and the leaven get used up in the process. The seed falls into the ground and dies. The leaven loses itself as it spreads all through the dough. Both the seed and the leaven are incredibly powerful and potent, and both spend their potency until it's used up. That's what Jesus demanded of his followers, right? That they be all in. He was more interested in potency than popularity. Because he knew that even a small amount of potency in the long run can have a bigger effect than a lot of short-term popularity. Let me ask you, pick up your average book from the New York Times bestseller list or the latest TED Talk that's trending, or uh, a top 10 song on Spotify from this past week, or the average news headline from the last few days, how much of that will matter next year, or in 10 years, or in 100 years? It's so tempting for us to water down potency in order to be relevant, to be acceptable, to be popular today. But, but Jesus knew just the opposite. And sociologists have actually backed him up. They concur that it's actually the highly committed vocal minority who actually changed the world, not the lukewarm 
majority. And so Jesus asked his followers, are you ready to lay down your life for this kingdom that I'm bringing? Are you ready to take up your cross and follow me? If not, maybe you should think twice about whether you really want to be part of my kingdom and have me as your king. Because Jesus wants to forgive our sins. Jesus wants to reconcile us to God. Jesus wants to have a personal relationship with us, all by grace, not because any of us deserves it. And Jesus wants to do more than that. Jesus wants to change your life and my life. Jesus wants to change the world. And Jesus wants to use your life and my life as he transforms us to be part of his bigger revolution of changing the whole world and giving others the chance to know him personally. And that means Jesus wants to make our lives potent. Because there's a big difference between a small seed and a small stone. Go plant a hundred small stones in your garden and see how much growth you get. None, right? Because they're all dead. But take a little seed packed with life, packed with potency, and see how big it can grow. That's why I could sum up my own personal philosophy of ministry like this. Start small, go deep, think big. Start small. All it takes is a seed or a little leaven. Go deep. It's about potency. It's about commitment. It's about willingness to to offer our life for the sake of the kingdom. Think big. There's no telling how much God can do given enough time with the small beginnings we may plant now. That's why Jesus is more interested in us making disciples than building churches. That's why you can't tell the health or the value of a church by how nice its building is or how big the crowd is that shows up there on a Sunday morning or or what our social media reach is. Because the measure of our our potential is not found in our bigness or in how popular we are. It's found in things that are small and small and hidden. It's found in our potency. And that's why I'm encouraged. Because these parables remind me that it's not about getting on the evening news or getting our message out to thousands. It's not about popularity. It's about potency. And when small beginnings are potent enough, I may never see it. You may never see it. But the result can eventually be enormous. What Jesus' parables also mean, which is also encouraging, is that there are little pockets of potency right now, here and there, all around the world. Groups of believers who are serious about following Jesus and giving their life for him, and they're having an impact. Maybe it's hidden, but they're leavening the culture. They're influencing it far beyond their size having more influence probably than they even realize. 
Because that's how Jesus says the kingdom comes. That's the effect it has. So may we be that kind of community and may we be those kinds of disciples. So one last question, what kind of potency does Jesus have in mind when he talks about his kingdom being like a seed or like a little bowl of leaven? It's not about our alignment with a certain political party or their top issues. It's not a vision to return to the good old wholesome values of the 1950s or maybe to the Christian church or family you grew up in. You want to know what kind of potency Jesus is talking about? Just do this. Flip back in Matthew to chapter 5 and read the Sermon on the Mount. And then read Matthew 10, where Jesus sends out his followers to heal the sick, to cast out demons, and to share good news, to give freely as they freely received. Read in those places about the upside-down kingdom that Jesus came to bring where the least are the greatest, where you find your life by losing it, where loving God and loving your neighbor is more important than anything else, and where loving even your enemies and turning the other cheek are important, where we lend to others without expecting to get paid back, where we give freely because we've freely received. And so we share good news with people, we bless people, we serve them, we pray in faith that more of God's kingdom will come in their lives. To sum it up, the kind of kingdom that Jesus came to bring is marked by two things, weakness and power. We saw this during Holy Week when we we looked at Jesus' humble entry into Jerusalem and then his horrible death on the cross But we saw how Jesus turned it into a powerful, victorious triumph, which burst forth at his resurrection. And as his followers, we're to follow Jesus in this pattern of weakness and power, cross and resurrection. The weakness is about what kind of people we're to be. People who don't seek our own comfort or power or security for ourselves, but we're humble, we're unassuming. We think more about loving others than of taking care of ourselves. The power is in the supernatural power that God puts to work in us and through us as we live this way and we trust him. So that by Christ's power, people are freed from their demons, literally or figuratively. That people are healed and made whole. That people hear the good news about Jesus and are invited into a life-transforming relationship with him as they begin their journey of eternal life. God's power at work in our weakness. That's the potency of Jesus. And the good news is that it's out there at work in the world. And may it be at work in us too. May it be at work through us as well. May we be a potent people. Let's pray. 
Jesus, thank you for this incredible vision with just a few words and a simple, relatable analogy you've given us. I pray that it would sink like a seed deep into our hearts, that like leaven, it would permeate our minds, our thinking, our hearts, our priorities, our dreams, that your kingdom would come more and more in our lives and that we, we may follow you, that we may follow, our lives may follow the shape of your life in your death and your resurrection so that we may be potent and bear great fruit for you as you seek to bring your kingdom in this world. Amen.